Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Many thanks to those of you who've signed up to The Rest is Politics Plus and are enjoying the early release of these Question Time episodes. If you want to sign up and haven't already, just go to therestispolitics.com. That is also where you can find how to buy the remaining tickets for our live show in Blackpool on October the 8th, although the posh seats have all now sold out. Now, Rory, I said um, on the main podcast I wanted to kick off with education because it was quite interesting how many questions there were this week. Richard Westcott, why is there so little focus on education in the political debate? People obsess about the health service, but there's next to nothing on funding for state schools, which are struggling. Martin Brader, you'll like this one. We've had nine secretaries of state for education in 12 years. How can that be considered a priority? How long do you need in a job to get on top of the uh, get on top of things and make a difference? Dord says schools asking parents for money to fund basics. Is this not incremental privatisation? And Tim Roach, I'd like to know your thoughts on lifting a grammar school moratorium. Will it increase inequality? Well, I can answer that one very, very briefly. Yes, it would. Um, so, Rory, what do you think? It's true, isn't it? We don't hear, you know, when, when, when I was working with Tony Blair, priority education, 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 I think we did focus on that, but it doesn't really get into the debate in a way that it used to. It's difficult, isn't it? Very difficult, very tough. And I don't, don't know what's going on there because everybody gets that fundamentally, if we're really to transform our economy, get our growth going, we need much, much higher quality education. And Britain is very sadly behind in a loss of the international metrics and league tables, even on very basic stuff like, like literacy and maths. And that's not good. And, we, you know, all the drives of various governments to get STEM subjects off the ground haven't paid off as much as people had hoped. We're not getting as many people into science, technology, engineering, maths as we'd hoped. Um, compared to, you know, we were talking on this in the podcast, the incredible figures that are being achieved in China in terms of engineering graduates. So, um, no, we, we've got to talk about it more, but maybe it's just another example of something that people struggle to get stories out of because a lot of it is so detailed. It's to do with everything from how you fund teachers' pensions to how you deal with uh, students with special needs, how you deal with school exclusions, how you deal with curriculum, how you deal with decaying school buildings. And maybe this stuff is just difficult to communicate. I think the other thing, sorry to get onto one of my regular hobby horses, but you know, 7% of the country use private education. Um, but if you get the figure for, for example, the cabinet, which is one of the most privately educated we've ever had. If you get the figure for leading editors and commentators, uh, many of them use private schools for their own children. And I think that the state system uh, is not treated with the respect that it needs within the national debate. I think that is one of the reasons that those who control the terms of national debate, too many of them, uh, either have their own experience of private education or experience with their children. And certainly large parts of the media, in my view, cover state schools either not at all or as a basket case, when actually if we all came together, and this is this is the lesson from Canada and from Finland and from those countries that are always right up near the top of the Pisa Lee tables, is that where there is a societal commitment 
to state education, then the state education is a lot stronger. Yeah, and I think I'm sure you're right that that people report well, thoughtfully about things they understand. And if if all these dominant voices in the media and politics are privately educated, they simply don't understand what they're talking about. Really <laughs> cheeky question here, but I thought it was I thought it was I was cheeky, but but it, it was it was maybe worth worth having a go at you on. So Rupert Carlton Jones. I've just listened to Alistair's interview with Stephen Mangan on his Confessions show, where Alistair confessed to never having done anything practical in his life, including never having cooked a meal. One, was Rory aware of this? Two, is Fiona an actual saint? Three, if he tells us he has never changed a nappy, I think I may have to stop listening. (laughs) Well, Rory, I told you last week, we were getting comments from people that they felt that question time was not as serious as the main podcast, and most of our listeners, I think, want well, us to stay serious. So, <laughs> tell me, tell, tell me, me the serious. I'm a politician. You're trying to avoid. Tell a me the serious. No, I'm happy to answer it. This but, is terrifying. Well, I'm, I'm happy most to of our it. listeners want to hear something else. That's exactly what all those Tory politicians <laughs> are. I don't think they want to. I think the listeners. I want think to what hear the about listener mine. wants to hear about <laughs> is my views on what's happening in Azerbaijan. Exactly. No, right. um, look, it's true. That I, it's not strictly true that I've never cooked a meal. I've cooked one meal in my life. It was a tuna and potato souffle. Oh my goodness. And it was in the, it was in the early days of my and Fiona's courtship 42, 43 years ago. And, and, and we can, we can conclude, we can conclude it did not go very well. If that it was, was the okay. Last one. It was okay. Although she did have to help me. I, I am not proud of my lack of practicality. Um, I'm not proud of the fact that I don't know how to change a plug. I don't know how to change a tire. Um, I'm not proud of it, but it's just, I, I think I'm good at some things and I'm not good at other things. Is Fiona a saint? I think probably, yeah. I think she's pretty close. And what was the third part of this? Uh, it, it, so you said if he tells us he's never changed a nappy. Oh, I changed loads of nappies. Oh, good. I changed oh, loads good. of nappies. Good. I think that I think Fiona would say that even though I had a very, 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 very busy job for much of their childhood, I was very good at being a dad. But I was probably only good at the things that she – I didn't do things like, you know, I like taking them out, I like playing with them, I like going out and playing football with the boys. But, look, I'm not proud of it, Rory. I'm very, very impractical. But shall we move on to something a bit less – Very good, go on, yeah. go on, give us something more serious. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Let's yeah. go for – let's go for Biden Truss. Paul Harrison. I get the sense that the Biden administration is fed up with the UK. How is the special relationship holding up? Ruth Wilkinson, is the Biden snub to trust? This was Biden not seeing trust in the margins of the funeral significant. Is this about him signaling his priority for Northern Ireland? And is that relevant to the trade deal? And Jeremy Hewer, how important do you think Biden's Irish heritage is in relation to his dealings with the UK? So I do think it's, you know, I, I think it would have been pretty extraordinary if it had been any previous prime minister, if there had been a president in town and there was no meeting, I think that was pretty, I do think that was pretty big. Really a bit odd. And she could have got to the airport scene and done almost anything. It's very, very strange. Um, I, I do think that it's certainly true that Biden began his presidency with a lot of reservations about Britain. And um, I remember when we were dealing with him over Iraq, we're now going back to 2005, 2006, a friend of mine went into a meeting with then Vice President Biden and tried to explain the situation between Sunni and Shia. And he said, I get it. I get it. They don't like each other. It's like me and the Brits. I'm Irish. So there is definitely a background there of him making jokes about not liking British people. 
Is that being public? Is, is that is that a known fact? Don't know. Don't know whether people have been talking much about that. But wow. definitely, he said. I've that heard him. Well. I've heard him make similar comments about his mother, right? But not about himself. Not about himself. Yeah. Mm. So, but I think since he's come in, he's been um, practical and. Like many American presidents, he understands the special relationship matters a lot to Britain. It's worth bearing in mind the special relationship point that somebody tried to track how many times the United States uses variants on special relationship, and they use it for something like nine or ten different countries. Obviously, they you know they would do it in a particular way in relation to Israel. They'd do it in a particular way in relation to, to you know many many other places that they're part of, Canada, etc. Um, but I think he's okay in his relationship to Britain. I definitely don't think he's going to put up with something that might lead to the breaking of the Northern Ireland Protocol there. But that's what he fears is on the cards, and that's possibly why he has been indicating it. We've said before, I, I think at some point, I really do hope he comes up and says in black and white why it would be so dangerous to the so-called special relationship. I, my sense of the Americans on the special relationship is that they, they only say it in reference to Britain when <laughs> when the British media are around. I don't think they kind of feel it in the way that we maybe feel it. Here's a good question from Tim Bell, who's a very smart professor, teaches at London, does a lot on Twitter, worth following for people who are political geeks. But he just asked us, the government has basically written a huge blank check worth at least £100 billion. If you ran the country and could write such a big blank check, what single thing would you spend the money on? I guess he's talking about the fact that the choice was to spend £150 billion probably on capping energy prices. Is that what you would have done or would you have done something else for the money? Oh my God, £150 billion. I mean, you can do a lot with 150 billion. You have to bear in mind, though, it's being borrowed. Yeah. So it's not as it were. It's not that you've got 150 billion in the bank. How do you spend it? It's a huge amount. Right? It's sort of. It's probably about 20 percent of government expenditure in a normal year. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Th- this probably sounds a bit crazy. Yeah. Given that one of my sort of passions in life is the the utter revolution of an in our approach to mental health understanding and services, my God, if you had £150 billion to invest in the mental health of the nation, we would be able to fix an awful lot of things. Um, I'd, I'd spend it on adult social care. So it, the, the real shame that I always felt as an MP, and it hasn't been dealt with at all, is the poor elderly currently get about 15 minutes of care a day. It's not enough really to wash them, let alone feed them. Mm. And it's the great unfinished revolution. The NHS never really extended to care for the frail elderly. And um, we should be using it to provide free care to the frail elderly. Good. Here's a good one. Rob Lency. Just watched Jacinda Ardern on the BBC. Listen to Mark Drakeford on The Rest is Politics. They both communicate so much more clearly than the leaders we see in Westminster. Why do you think that is? I did think about Mark Drakeford last week. I, I listened back to it a couple of times. I I. I really like the fact that he just answered the questions. Yeah, he, he sort of does, doesn't he? I mean, he, 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 he sometimes answers them missing out bits. I mean, he's still a politician, right? I mean, it's not. No, Rory, I think you're being very harsh on him. I, th- I think you're finding it very difficult. Fiona, I'm going to pass on a point that Fiona made. She came back from walking the dog, having listened to the podcast, and she said, Rory doesn't like admitting that Labour politicians are very effective. Ah, mm. I don't like admitting any politicians are very effective. I think, if you were honest, I think she, I think Fiona needs to, needs to. No, I, th- to I, th- I think you're being, no. I think you're being unfair. I think he answered the questions very, very clearly, and I think he answered them in a way that I, I, I had a lot of reactions like that. We had a lot of reactions um, to the to the podcast on from people saying they found it really refreshing that he he basically listened to the question, then he answered it, and then he started a, d- a debate around it. 
So you don't agree with the premise of I that question? I don't agree. I found, I found, I mean, it's a difficult one. We, we should come back to this. Um, I still found him a, a little bit on the boring side, but maybe this isn't, isn't the time to be having this discussion. Okay. Now, um, there was a good question I thought, which was, um, which goes to the heart of stuff that you know and that people are very interested in. So Seb Elson, watching the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, noticed Gordon Brown, Sheree Blair talking while seated next to each other. What's the relationship between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown now? Uh, he goes on to say, would you say they're friends? He finds the dynamic between XPMs fascinating, particularly when you see Johnson, May, Cameron, Brown, Blair, and Major all together. Mm. Are they friends? Are they close friends? Or is that not the right way of putting it? I think I think they were, there was a time in their relationship in opposition when they were very, very, very close friends politically and personally. I think that the strains and stresses of government meant that du- there were periods during our time in, in office when it, well, this is no secret, you know, there are eight volumes of it, um, when things became quite strained. But I'd say they are, I think that their relationship is, is a lot better. I think there's a, I think there's a, a real mutual respect, to, um, that they both have. But equally, they've gone on to do, they're both still very active and very involved, but they, you know, they, they don't, as it were, do stuff together in the way that for most of their, their careers they did. Um, I, I found that, that we talked in, on the main podcast about how interesting it was, all the body, all the, the sort of people watching that you could do at the funeral. I did find that, you know, because we've had so many prime ministers in these last 12 years of conservative failure, Rory, austerity, Brexit, conservatives, devaluation, disaster, <laughs> um, we now have more former prime ministers than we've ever had in our history. One of my favorite moments of the entire funeral service was when the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, he, he was definitely looking at Boris Johnson when he said the line about people who really serve will be re- remembered long after those who sought to cling on to power and privilege. <laughs> I, I thought that was a, that was a very, very, very good line. It's also a good line from an Archbishop, I guess. It's something we really want to. Was that the main sermon, wasn't it? I thought it was mm. really good. He, mm. It was, it was short. It was punchy. It's also for, for kind of historical geeks. It's amazing the role of um, clergymen giving speeches in these royal contexts. Um, a lot of what was going on in Shakespeare's plays is responding to the other great dramatic moments in Elizabethan early Jacobean England, which were about priests challenging the queen and the king in their Sunday sermons. And this went all the way back to Henry VIII. The queens and kings had to sit there mm. and listen to sometimes quite radical preachers who yeah. pop up on a Sunday, an hour and a half, two-hour sermon, lecturing them on the sins of the kings and all this kind of thing. John Knox, of course, a great one at doing this to, to James I of Scotland. Mm. I, I thought what I liked about the Archbishop's um, contribution, I, I thought there was, a, there was a personality to it. I didn't think the readings were very good. I wasn't that moved by the hymns, and I, I do like a I do like a nice hymn. You didn't you didn't like the Lord's my shepherd, that's all right. Oh yeah, that was fine. That was yeah. fine. But that's kind of you know that that's but but I just felt the the readings could have maybe been a, had a bit more personal and personality in them. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos... 
Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. And here we are back again with the rest of this politics question time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Andrew Kitching wants to know, I don't know if you've been to state funerals, Rory, what's your most memorable state funeral from your days in government? Mine actually is very, very close to where you're sitting right now. It was King Hussein. There was the very sad point of your, of your mother's death. Was that the same event? No, no, no. My, I, no, 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 it wasn't. I was, I was, that was separate. I was in Jordan when my mother died. But no, the King Hussein's funeral, which was... What, what, what do you remember about it? I just remember the elements of chaos. I remember when we were reading about the build-up to the Queen's funeral and there was the, the whole thing about the, the, the leaders would have to go on a bus and Biden's people say there's no way he's going on a bus and then the other leaders saying, well, why do, can, why do I have to go on a bus if he's not on a bus and all that stuff. And there was, there was everyone was taken to this kind of vast, I, 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 in my diary, I call it a holding palace. Everyone was sort of bundled into this palace. And so what you had was these literally hundreds of of dignitaries from different parts of the world bumping into each other. I remember Chirac and Clinton having what they, Clinton was joking, was one of the sort of, you know, one of the best bilaterals he'd ever had. And it was literally on a staircase while across the way, there was another bilateral going on between, you know, the, the Israeli and the Jordanian. And then down the stairs, Tony Blair had bumped into the German chancellor. And there was just, it was, it was like this kind of, and of course people were being respectful, 
but there were no cameras in there. So it was literally, it was like a political bazaar. People were thinking, right, I can get, I remember on the walk down, they would then had to walk down to the, to the burial. And it was like, you could see the leaders who were desperately trying to get in the shot behind Clinton. And there's all this right, 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 jostling right, right. going on. And people who were just wanting to, I remember Clinton turning to Chirac at one point and saying, hey, Jack, how many bilaterals? You know, I'd done 30 down the staircase. I did 12 in that little room with the coffee. And it was just, it was just chaos. It was, but it was, it was something wonderful about it. No. Um, now we, we had a, we had a question from somebody about apologies. Lewis Thomas asked, could you please give some insight on why there are many historic wrongs the government's acknowledged but don't apologize for? An example being the Amritsar massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an interesting one. So I think the Queen laid a wreath at Amritsar. Amritsar was where General Dyer opened fire on a crowd in Amritsar. Um, it's a very, very big scene in the film Gandhi that people will, will remember. Queen laid a wreath in 97. David Cameron said it was deeply shameful in 2013. 2019, Theresa May said, we deeply regret what happened and the suffering caused. She called it a shameful scar in British Indian history, but she didn't apologize. What's going on that they say all these things, but they just somehow fall short of apologizing? I don't know in relation to that one. You probably know more about it than I do. There is something strange about the extent to which politicians and governments don't like to apologize. And yet some of the most powerful moments come from apology. Um, was it Kevin Rudd who was Prime Minister of Australia when he apologised for the treatment of the indigenous population? Right. Um, I, I, people often say that one of David Cameron's finest moments was his response to the Bloody Sunday inquiry. And I guess what that says is that sometimes it's easier to apologise for things that have happened that were not, as it were, directly your fault, your responsibility. And, and that's definitely true with the Amritsar massacre. I mean, why, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, if you're going to say it's deeply shameful, it's an indelible scar on Britain's reputation, I mean, you basically have apologised. So why not just say, and we profoundly apologise? I don't know is the answer on that. I don't know why you wouldn't do that. I imagine at the time there would have been political pressures possibly from other parts of Indian politics, other parts of the region's politics. I just don't know. Or, or what maybe people are saying with, when it comes to British Empire that it's not quite clear where you'd ever stop. And, you know, are you going to be, how far back are you going to go with your apologies? You're going to apologize for what happened 300 years ago, 400 years ago, et cetera. Well, I, I saw, I saw in the, in the, the build-up to the Queen's funeral, the interview with a member of the Greek establishment and was on to the theme of the Elgin Marbles and, um, I've often wondered about that, whether it's because it's, it's a kind of where do you draw the line? Once you've conceded a principle uh, about where something rightfully belongs, what then is the next one? I don't know, but it's a, I, I, I think there is, because in, we know in our own lives that actually apology often can be very healing uh, and very strengthening. I actually think that the public are far more tolerant of people apologizing um, although you might, you may remember Nick Clegg when he apologised for tuition fees. I mean, that do you remember? And he, he he was immediately sort of lampooned by some of the best memes that were ever made. One one of the questions on you, that education question that you read right at the beginning of this episode commented on ministers turning over so quickly, and yeah. clearly that is very 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 fundamental to our entire problems in governance. I mean, we talked about that. We've had you know, six foreign secretaries in whatever it is, eight years compared to six in 24 years. And the- but nine education secretaries in 12 years, that's pretty extraordinary, it's isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable. But if you, you know, in my, my ministerial career, I was in my first job for just under 12 months as environment minister. I was then 
Middle East Asian minister for, I think, another 12 months, Africa minister for probably seven months, prisons minister for 14 months. I mean, it's completely mad. And so we've got this odd situation where, on the one hand, we pretend that ministers run things. So we've got a sort of slightly headless chicken situation where our entire constitution is based on this idea that civil servants advise and ministers decide. And if there aren't strong ministers in place, often there's real inertia and it's very difficult for stuff to get done. But on the other hand, the civil service are very, very aware that the ministers are going to be swapped over every year or at most every two years. And so if a minister comes in with very strong views, wants to do something, uh, they will be very aware that their successor may well not want to do that. And there's no point going down that path. I mean, I felt this again and again. I would try to think I was being bold, doing something really big on and doubling DFID spend on environment and climate change. And I couldn't understand the resistance. But now I realize that, of course, they're thinking, well, if we go right over the top and make a two billion pound commitment for this guy, the next woman or man coming in is, is likely to reverse it. So why mm. would we do it? We've had all those jobs, Roy. I'm about to give you another job. Hobbit King, if you could work, asking us both, if you could work for any prime minister in history, who would it be and why? Um, for, for me, I would definitely work for William Gladstone. What would your job be? Oh, blimey, I'd do anything for him. I'd carry his bag. I'd be his chief of staff. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd do anything. What I love about him is the sense that he got so much more radical as he got older. I love people who start as kind of rigid conservatives as he did. He started as a defender of the slave trade and finished as one of our most liberal prime ministers ever trying to solve the problems in Ireland. In fact, if he'd got his home rule bill through, he may well have been able to save such untold misery. Mm. And, mm. and the older he got the more radical he got. And I, I, there's, there's a lovely interview, which I'm completely obsessed with, with Samuel Beckett towards the end of his life, where a French interviewer is asking him, does, you know, he's in his 80s, do you miss your youth? And Beckett says, not with the fire that's in me now. <laughs> that's interesting, because I was utterly obsessed by Samuel Beckett when I was at university, including making pilgrimages to Paris to try and track him down in cafes. Did you find so, him? No. I found him once, and it was very oh, well brief done. and very unsatisfying. Um, I think I'd go for Attlee. Aha. What would you do for him? I just would have liked to have observed him, because he's, I, I do think he's one of those prime ministers that genuinely changed the country for the better. And obviously that era was very, very special in our history. I probably, I probably would have, I'd like to have been his speechwriter, actually. I think that would have been quite an interesting job. You definitely would have been a bit more oomph. His speeches were phenomenally boring, so it could have, could have done with you. Um, although Adley had these incredibly dominating charismatic figures in his cabinet, Bevan, mm. Beva and others. I mean, I, I, and that's slightly what I worry Labour's lacking at the moment. I'm, we're lacking these huge big beasts that, that was the secret for at least team of rivals. Um, here's a question, not for today, but to put us on our metal for us to answer next week, because mm -hmm. I don't think we can do it. We'll humiliate ourselves if we try now. But Fabiana Lopez da Silveira, I'm an enthusiastic yet slightly frustrated Brazilian listener of your podcast. As you constantly name drop Bolsonaro as a token example of the rise of mainly right-wing populism across the globe, but never actually talk about him or Brazil in general. So here is my challenge, that both of you spend at least five straight minutes commenting on Brazilian politics, including former President Lula, who's leading all the polls, even though Bolsonaro insists that it's all a lie. 
Well, actually, Roy, I would be very happy to spend five minutes talking about that right now. But however, I have to be in the dentist chair in a few minutes. So, but I'm happy. I'm happy. I think she, I think Fabiana is right. I think we, given that Brazil is such an enormous country, given Bolsonaro is such a controversial figure and Lula is a very controversial figure too, uh, we probably have been a little bit remiss in not talking more about the Brazilian election. Um, so yeah, let's do that. Let's do that next week. I really think that thing about the dentist is a bit cheeky. I don't think most of our listeners believe that you can do five minutes nonstop on Brazilian politics. I, well, I can, and I will do it with the dentist. If, that, <laughs> and I will, if you like, I will film myself. I will film myself in the dentist chair. No, go on, do it next to the do dentist. It, I believe you. Do it, do it. Let's. Why, why don't Why don't we close on on something a little bit lighter? Um, it's perfectly obvious to me from responses just walking around the place and on social media that uh, Peter Morgan's film The Queen was obviously played at some point on television in recent days um, because there were quite a lot of questions of it about it. Sam Galloway asks me, how frustrating was it to be portrayed as a caricature in The Queen? Ed, did you like your portrayal in the thick of it? Rory, who would you like to play you if a film was made of your life? And lots of questions just asking, what did I think of the movie The Queen? And what do I think of the new Labour portrayals and the actors who have played me? Um, so let's do you first. Who would you like to? I know you said Danny DeVito the last time we were asked this, but what's a serious answer? Who would you like to play you? Yeah, I'd like to play me. Oh. It has to be one of those posh boy actors, wouldn't it? Damien Lewis, Benedict Cumberbatch, one of the Etonian Herovians. Well, I'm a huge, huge fan of Eddie Redmayne. And in certain lights, yeah, he looks, he looks a bit like, like a much better looking version of myself. So maybe that, maybe that would be the way to go. Have you seen Private Eye this week? No, I didn't see Private Eye this week. You are in Private Eye. Please don't get scared. You are in Private oh. Eye as the, you know, the thing where they do, are they by any chance related? And it's you and Abraham Lincoln. And the caption says, don't let anybody be fooled by Lincoln's beard. And you do have that Eddie Redmayne sort of lined face look, both of you. So let's go with Eddie, Redma yeah. Eddie Redmayne uh, playing Rory Stewart, okay. Abraham Lincoln. Cool. And what's, what's your answer to those questions? Um, I thought The Queen was a, an extraordinary film because it didn't portray The Queen or Tony Blair as caricatures, but it did play, it did portray the other characters, me, Duke of Edinburgh, Cherie Blair. I think we were caricatured, but that maybe that's just because they don't have, you know, the, the, the central story was the relationship between the Queen and the Prime Minister. And I thought they were very well portrayed. I, I've been played by quite a lot of actors in quite a lot of different films. The best one, I think, was the guy who played me uh, I don't like the subject matter, but I, I hats off to the guy who played me. It was was the the film about David Kelly? I think it was called Death of a Government Inspector. Um, I was <laughs> Ian Duncan Smith's son is an actor, and he played me. Oh well, there we are. That's a thing in a play at some point. Now, I never saw the play, um, but people tell me that he was uh, he was quite good. So I my my great moment of glory is there was a play about me at the um, Hampstead Theatre. Um, and I got played by an actor who'd acted as a Quidditch captain in Harry Potter. There we are. Um, now then, um, final, final question, go on. Emily Drayson, does either of you have a favorite Scots word or phrase? She says hers are out with and scunnered. Mine is glaikit. My mum used that a go lot. On, tell us about glaikit. Glaikit basically means gormless. Very good. My father liked scunnered. He loved saying wished to me to be oh, shut yeah, up. Yeah. Wished, wished, yeah. And Scottish politics, as you know, they love the word fiert and fierty as a yeah. way of getting at each other. Yeah, yeah. 
Thanks. Thanks. Enjoy the dentist. <laughs> I'll and, try. And we look forward to your Bolsonaro round next it's a great, week. It's very relevant. It's a crown in the week of oh, the Oh, very good. Crown yourself. It's very crown. good. Your, your own crown. All yeah. right. Lots of love. See you All soon. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.